Hey everyone, it's Reed. This is part one of a three-part mini-series we're doing on the rise of right-wing extremism in this country. I hope you give it a listen, and I hope you listen to all three. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by David Nyward, journalist, award-winning author, and an expert on American right-wing extremism. He's appeared on Anderson Cooper 360, CNN Newsroom, The Rachel Maddow Show, and is the former Pacific Northwest correspondent for the Southern Poverty Law Center. His work has also appeared in a variety of outlets, including Mother Jones, The Washington Post, and MSNBC. His latest book is The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Right's Assault on American Democracy, which is available for pre-order wherever fine books are sold. Today, he is coming to us from the beautiful San Juan Island in the great state of Washington. David, welcome. Thanks for having me, Reed. So let's talk a little bit about your book. You know, I've read so much about this movement. You know, I was thinking about this as I was listening to another podcast about this particular strain of American society, I guess I'll call it, although they tend to be antisocial. And the thing that I found most interesting is, first, how long that this has been with us. But secondly, I thought that one of the things you said in your book was, and something that we've said several times is, that January 6th wasn't the end of something, it was the beginning. So take us a little bit into the book and how you really came together to talk about all these different groups, their motivations, and how they became intermeshed, intertwined with our politics today. For me, the story begins almost in my childhood. I grew up in Southern Idaho at a time when uh, the John Burke Society tended to dominate the political scene there. So our culture was awash in conspiracy theories and, you know, far-right paranoia. You know, I was non-LDS, so I was kind of out of that loop. <laughs> and um, even when I went to school in northern Idaho, where their influence isn't quite so powerful, they were still around. And my first job in newspapers at the old Sandpoint Daily Bee up in Sandpoint. I was recruited by a, a local John Bird Society member. He invited me over for dinner one night and got out of one of those uh, John Birch film loop things <laughs> and proceeded to have me watch it. So I was around all that. But even more importantly, of course, we had at the same time, this was in the late 70s, we had the Aryan Nations move into the area from Southern California. And within a matter of just a couple of years, the whole region, the whole panhandle was awash in these right-wing extremists who came flooding up to sort of join the party, as it were. Right. So that was the sort of Coeur d'Alene area. It's almost Canada, right? Very remote. Not a lot going up out there. It's east of Spokane, Washington. Yeah. Their compound was in Hayden, which is about 40 miles south of Sandpoint. But we had a number of members up in our area, including at least two members of what later became the Order, the neo-Nazi uh, terrorist gang, who in 1984 embarked on a criminal rampage that included assassinating a radio talk show host in Denver and robbing over 20 banks and armored cars. And they were finally brought to ground by the FBI that year. But their legend lives on, as it were, especially among the neo-Nazis. Uh, the leader of the order was a guy named Robert Matthews, who died in a standoff with the FBI 
on Whidbey Island in Western Washington. And to this day, we get clusters of neo-Nazis coming out to commemorate his death on December 7th every year out there on the, on the island. And they're a problem, as they always are. Right. And I wouldn't imagine that modern-day Whidbey Island really a haven for those kinds of folks. No, not really. Although we do have a very large percentage of militiamen on Whidbey Island, mainly ex-Navy guys who stayed there after their time in the Whidbey Island uh, Naval Reserve Station was over. So, you know, we have an element of that. But, you know, Western Washington's always had a certain number of white supremacists. And this goes back to the 1920s and 30s, maybe even before that. So I started writing about, this was when I was just a newspaperman, news editor and reporter. And by the 1990s, when I decided to start freelancing, they were starting to organize these militias in the, here in the area, mostly as a kind of anti-environmental backlash, which is how I started writing about them as a freelancer. And then Oklahoma City happened, and suddenly I was a militia expert, as it were. <laughs> right. So, David, let's talk a little bit about this, because the folks that you're talking about, right, as you got your start, were militia people, they were separatists, they were, you know, neo-Nazis. But these were folks who were the fringe of the fringe, right? They intentionally put themselves in the middle of nowhere, for the most part, right? In, in very remote areas where they could stockpile weapons and food and prepare for whatever reckoning was going to come. But again, on the outskirts, right? The federal government knew about them and in some cases, you know, tried to prosecute them and spectacularly failed early on. But, you know, then it seems like as you go into the 90s, it picks up steam. As you mentioned, first, there's Ruby Ridge in 1992, Waco in 1993, Oklahoma City, uh, the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building, you know, in 95. And so the Timothy McVeigh, Terry Nichols stuff seems to drive them underground, or at least they're less noteworthy. But again, still very fringe movements. Again, these are guys and I guess their families and whatever weird setup they have that aren't part of the mainstream. Yeah, it was striking even back then, I got to tell you, that when I would go to Aryan Congresses, you know, you'd see, of course, the sort of expected skinheads with swastika tattoos in the crowd. But the majority of the people attending these events were normal looking. They looked like Ma and Pa Jones next door. And you talk to them and... They were basically like my John Birch Society neighbors that I grew up with, only gone to another degree. They were talking about the same concerns and same elements, but they had just taken it off to the next step of extremism. And one of the things I started really realizing is that, you know, a lot of extremism really wraps itself in normalcy. And in fact, my conclusion in 1999 in my first book about the militia movement was that this was essentially an attempt by right-wing extremists, white supremacists, to return to the mainstream. The militia patriot movement, as they called themselves, were fundamentally an attempt to bring their ideas into the mainstream of American politics, and particularly through the conservative movement, because they were arch-conservative. And I thought it was pretty interesting that one of the things that happened back in the early 80s in northern Idaho was that, you know, the Aryan nations attracted a lot of people to the region who were 
outright criminals. And one of these was a guy named Keith Gilbert, who had done prison time, spent, I think, 10 years in prison for attempting to assassinate Martin Luther King back in 1964. And he moved to Post Falls after he got out of prison because he had been a member of the Aryan Nations Church down in Southern California. And he used to drive around town in this Volkswagen thing that was festooned with swastikas. Right. And a Volkswagen thing is sort of the German army World War II equivalent of a Jeep. Very boxy and weird looking. Yeah. And Gilbert, he liked to hand out the uh, running black man targets that you see in the Black Klansman. He distributed those all around the region. But he developed a habit of harassing people of color, particularly he targeted this uh, family, a white woman who had mixed-race children, and harassing these kids on their way home from school. And the prosecutors and, and law enforcement realized that they didn't have the tools to adequately de deal with this kind of threat. So Idaho was actually one of the very first states to pass a hate crimes law that was intended to sort of deal with this problem. And it passed with the full support of Republican Party back then, because Republicans in the early 80s understood that neo-Nazis were not their friends. Right-wing extremists were as much a threat to them as they are to the rest of us. And I'm afraid that, you know, in the intervening years, that understanding has completely melted away. So there's two things, David, that appear to be the main thrusts, which are virulent racism and violence. And there are other pillars, you know, it's sort of hatred of the federal government and this sort of idea of um, what do they call themselves? They're constitutional citizens, right? No one literally can tell me what to do. There's no law that applies to me. It's to your point about things that have morphed into it's not even libertarianism. It's full on nihilism. But again, didn't appear to want any real involvement with the quote unquote system unless it was to tear it down and destroy it. Yeah, no, that's the thing. And, you know, we used to, at the SPLC, when I was at the Southern Poverty Law Center, we always designated militia groups as anti-government. But my own impression was, and I was always arguing this at the SPLC, that we shouldn't call them anti-government because they actually want a government. They want their government. They want their sort of authoritarian rule. What they are is fundamentally anti-democratic. Let me ask you that, because, you know, I've seen that before. And, and I, you know, you go back 100, almost 100 years, right, David, to early 1930s Germany, right, where they'd been under the Kaiser for, you know, however many years that had princelings all over the place. The Weimar Republic was a democracy, you know, that ultimately fell. But a lot of Germans were totally fine with the idea of an authoritarian government. But maybe it's because I'm naive here, David, but like, it seems so strange to me for an American to say, you know what? I don't want to choose my leaders. I want there to be a leader. I want them to be in charge. And I want to be part of the group that wants to be in charge with them. What drives that, do you think? Because it's just so totally, first of all, anti-American to me, antithetical to what I believe the best of American values are. So what drives that kind of belief system? I think uh, a couple of things. The main thing is it's, uh, authoritarian personalities that these folks all have what we call authoritarian personalities, which are driven by basically three core sort of attributes. The first is 
authoritarian submission, which is the belief that we should all submit to the rule of the great authoritarian leader whose wisdom is going to guide us and will keep us secure and safe. Second is authoritarian aggression, which is directed against anyone who fails to submit to the authoritarian leader. And then third is uh, conventionalism, this idea that they represent the sort of real face of America. And those three traits combine to create a lot of different attributes, one of which is, you know, they're very prone to conspiracism. They have an extremely high tolerance for bigotry if they don't actually participate in it themselves. And they also have a really overblown sense of just how popular their views actually are. You know, there's been a lot of work done on authoritarian personalities over the years. Bob Altemeyer's work out of Manitoba is really kind of groundbreaking in this area. But the thing is that every society has a certain percentage of these authoritarian personalities. And in fact, it's kind of a human trait to run for the sense of security and safety that authoritarian leaders claims that they can offer. Right. I alone can fix it. We heard somebody say that not too long ago, right? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. But one of the things that can happen, of course, is that you can actually induce a sort of authoritarian response in people by jacking up the levels of fear. Fear-mongering is the prime way of getting people to lean into their own natural authoritarian tendencies. So let's take that for a second, because I want to bring us up to where we are today, David, in the wake of the horror that we saw in Allen, Texas, as we're recording this, which was eight people killed, seven more wounded. And as we're recording this, it appears that the gunman, who is of Latino descent, but was a believer in the things that we're discussing here. And the immediate thing you see from the now mainstream kind of people that we're talking about, you know, I think. Marjorie Taylor Greene is probably foremost amongst them as far as being someone in, with real power, right, in a real house of the United States government, saying this is about mental health, this isn't about guns. You know, when your whole idea is to lie about everything to prove your point, David, you can lie about everything and it doesn't really matter to you, right? Obviously talking about his ethnicity, but then immediately switching to, you know, and the border's coming and more of these people are going to be here. And, and one of the people that responded to her when she said this, and she loves this stuff, is the beasts are coming. And we heard Tommy Tuberville last year in, I think, Nevada, you know, at a, at a rally with Donald Trump say, those people are coming for you. Yeah. Well, honestly, I started seeing authoritarian tendencies among conservative Republicans shortly after 9-11, in authoritarian tendencies spreading in general society in the years after 9-11, because there was so much fear-mongering going on then. And this included fear-mongering directed at immigrants, which began drumming up around 2003 and 2004. And we knew from monitoring right-wing extremist groups, particularly nativists and white supremacists, that they were planning to begin recruiting for their movements around the issue of immigration in the early 2000s. And so we had, you know, by 2005, we had the Minutemen propping up on the border, doing vigilante border patrols run by militiamen. And it just started building up from there. So by the time the Tea Party came along in 2009, the sort of melded into that whole movement. And we certainly saw a lot of patriot movement stuff 
getting fully mainstreamed like a direct conduit. But you mentioned the Tea Party, and I think about that a lot because I was still working within the Republican Party at that point. And I think it gets overlooked, to your point, as the first real time at which two different, let's just call it two different pipes, the mainstream conservative slash Republican Party and this fringe stuff got locked together. And maybe it was a trickle or at least a, a low flow, for lack of a better way to put it. But very quickly, I mean, within a decade, it becomes a gusher, a torrent. Well, I had been really concerned about the mainstreaming of the patriot movement beliefs, even in the 90s, because I could see it spreading in rural areas. And it just kept going along at like a sort of steady little drumbeat pattern that eventually, by the time it became the Tea Party, had become the drumbeat. And we certainly saw in rural areas, by I would say by 2015, 2016, these so-called constitutionalist beliefs that are endemic to the patriot movement had really become very commonplace out in, you know, I, I grew up in Idaho. My wife's from Montana. I spent a lot of time in rural areas and was very familiar with how common these beliefs were being embraced. What is it about the rural areas that there's a preponderance of beliefs? I'm not going to say everybody that lives in a rural area is a white nationalist, but why in the rural areas? Well, I think to some extent it's Fox News. I think Fox News plays everywhere out in these rural areas. Was it like a Rush Limbaugh before that? Like Rush was always on the radio. Yeah. And not just Rush, of course, but Rush was their god. But then they had, of course, there were all the uh, the imitators, Michael Savages, and, and to some extent, Alex Jones, who wasn't really a Rush imitator, but he was very much part of this encouraging and inflaming the resentment that has sort of always existed between urban and rural areas. Rural people being constantly told that Everybody in urban areas, liberal Democrats, hate them and look down their nose at them. And there may be some truth to that, too, right? There is to some extent, although I, I would have to say that the huge majority of urban dwellers just don't think about them. People in urban areas really kind of live in a bubble about what is going on in rural areas. And understandably, a lot of rural folks resent it, but this was exploited by right-wing extremists who were using this to drive a wedge among our citizens. I want to go back to one thing you talked about. We mentioned this constitutionalism, because there's something that I've heard recently pop up. The last person I heard mention it was Lauren Boebert, of all people, who, you know, again, God willing, she'll lose by more than the 500 votes she won by last year. And it said, their hostility to democracy is reflected in one of the movement's embedded truisms. America is a republic, not a democracy. I've heard that a lot. Now, okay, so we're a constitutional republic, but the one thing that, you know, David, for me is, you know, it's a representative democracy, all the other stuff, but it's also like, it gives license to say we're a constitutional republic. What that constitution says is really up for grabs. It's actually a non sequitur because, of course, even the Soviet socialist republics are constitutions, right? Right. The Democratic People's Republic of Korea, right? Or the DPRK. Yeah, saying it's a republic, not a democracy, is both dumb and dangerous. Well, if you're going to have one, you might as well have the other. You know, apparently the idea that it might be a democratic republic has escaped their notice. Right. But explain to our listeners why they do that. It's a way of undermining democratic institutions, which have always been the target of right-wing extremist organizing. 
even back in the 60s and 70s when the Posse Comitatus was doing its thing out here and organizing this hyper-local approach to governance. You know, they were the ones who had first argued that the sheriff is the supreme law of the land and so on and so forth. Well, the, the reasons they were doing this was all to undermine the ability of the federal government to enforce civil rights laws, to enforce environmental laws, all kinds of federal statutes that they believe are illegitimate, or they will argue are illegitimate functions of the government. And we're seeing more and more sheriffs who really are answerable only to two people in most places, which is God and their voters, right? You're seeing more and more of these sort of constitutionalist sheriffs popping up all over the place saying, you know, my county's a Second Amendment zone, right? You know, whatever I say goes here. And, you know, again, most of those I expect are probably more rural in nature. But it is interesting to see, because this is the other part, too, is that even if we believe that that sheriff is out of bounds or off base as far as legality, decency, et cetera, et cetera, that patina of law enforcement, right, which most Americans still support law enforcement, gives a legitimacy to that kind of stuff. Yeah, it definitely helps them spread the stuff to citizens who might not be well enough informed to understand that it's a, a load of bosh. But yes, it's definitely part of how they are spreading in these rural areas because they use the legitimacy of their position to push this ideology, and it's toxic. Well, and on the democracy front, I, I would be remiss if I didn't remind our listeners about my senator's feelings on democracy, David, says, quote, similarly, Utah Senator Mike Lee, a devoted Trumpist, insisted in 2020 that, quote, we're not a democracy, adding that democracy isn't the objective, liberty, peace, and prosperity are. Well, you know, that's fine. But I, in fact, I wrote an op-ed for the Salt Lake Tribune responding to that. And, you know, Lee went on to become the person who introduced Sidney Powell and John Eastman to the White House, right? He was the one with the text messages basically saying, I'm trying to get this done. You've got to give me legal cover to do it. And so now let's talk a little bit about January 6th because you have Donald Trump, who you know we knew was never going to go quietly. We didn't know what form it would take, but we knew it wasn't going to go quietly. And then you have people like Mike Lee and others who are within the government trying to make this happen. You have Ron Johnson, who's like, here, give these to the vice president. And the guy's like, I don't want those. You keep them. But then you mix with the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, Enrico Terrio, who's just been convicted of seditious conspiracy, Stuart Rhodes, who is, you know, the government's asking for 25 years. So it becomes, you know, to apologize to Sebastian Junger because we've killed his expression, the perfect storm of all of these things happens between the Washington Monument and the Capitol building on January 6, 2021. Well, it had been building, and January 6th was both a culmination of all these trends that we've just been talking about into a single event, as well as it was the beginning of what's going to be a, an ongoing insurrection against the U.S. government. And, you know, I mean, Trump did the whole stand back and stand by to the, the Proud Boys. Stuart Rhodes definitely believed that he and Trump were simpatico. He had back channels, supposedly, to Trump. And it wasn't just him. It was amazing how broadly and how what a wide swath of the radical right had coalesced behind Trump really as early as January 2016. But their devotion became, you know, just perfervid over the next four years. 
And they had their moments of disagreement with him, but he was still their glorious leader. So let me ask you, David, because I want to bring this to something that our listeners can use, which is the things that we've talked about, and we'll be talking more about these events on the show, is typically it's been law enforcement that has taken out these people. There's a lot of violence, as you noted, whether or not it's the Brinks truck, what we saw in Allen, the Tree of Life synagogue, which the, the trial's going on right now, the shopping market in Buffalo, the Walmart in El Paso, right? Like, I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on. And so there's an awful lot of carnage that comes with it. But how do individual Americans who are admittedly and justifiably wary and worried about being able to go to the shopping mall, how does the individual American do their part to push back on this? Because it's awfully scary out there. First of all, I think that there has to be a recognition that right-wing extremism is a real threat to American democracy. And if they want to keep their freedom, if they want to keep their liberty, they need to defend democracy because democracy is what ensures their liberty. One of the problems is that we have these billionaires like Peter Thiel out there telling people that democracy and freedom are incompatible, which is the exact opposite of the truth. I mean, one of the things that happens with all of these massacres, and, and I, I think we'd be remiss not to mention the Macmillan massacre with an SUV that plowed through the line of refugees yesterday as well, is that like all kinds of terrorism, its whole purpose is to instill a wave of fear, which once again just reinforce the desire to reach for an authoritarian solution. Whatever way they can find to attack democratic institutions, they will do. And so it runs the whole gamut. I mean, you've got people in Congress and in these state legislatures trying to oppress the vote for young people and people of color, which is another form of the same attempt to attack democratic institutions. And of course, you have conspiracy theorists like Alex Jones just spewing disinformation and misinformation. And QAnons out there, which Michael Flynn, who was one time not only a three-star general, ran the Defense Intelligence Agency, was briefly, you know, National Security Advisor, is out there giving the QAnon thing. Right. And this is also a way of undermining Americans' faith in their news media. Basically, it's a form of creating so much chaos in the information space that people can't tell what's true and what's not anymore. Right. And this is not a new phenomenon. We've seen this throughout history. And, you know, it's interesting you mentioned the media because on the right, even going back to Rush, they used, you know, one thing from Reagan about, you know, the seven scariest words are I'm from the government, I'm here to help, which I don't know if Reagan really believed that or not, but it certainly became the hallmark by which so many of these folks talked about how the government was fundamentally bad. It was fundamentally, you know, screwing you and your family. And look, government policy over the decades, you've got plenty to complain about, right? There's no question about it. But there's a difference between complaining and petitioning your government and saying, you know what, let's go to the Capitol and kill a bunch of people and burn the whole place down. Yeah, it's all in baby steps. It all takes baby steps. I mean, Trump couldn't have pulled off a January 6th in 2017, but he certainly was able to in 2021. You know, if he had lo actually lost in 2016, he wouldn't have been able to muster this kind of army. But, you know, you take it step by step and you uh, accumulate this sort of critical mass 
and eventually you're going to have real problems. I mean, really the primary way that since January 6th that right-wing extremists have organized to undermine our democracy is at the local level. They've been seeing Proud Boys and Three Percenters and white supremacists and neo-Nazis turning out for drag queen shows. We've seen them turning up to harass library boards and school boards. I saw them last summer in Coeur d'Alene trying to attack a uh, Pride in the Park event in Coeur d'Alene. And they had like 20 guys in the back of a U-Haul that got caught, right? Yeah, 31 of them, yeah. I mean, because sometimes these guys are not that bright. No, no, they're, they're not. But that's one of the things about right-wing extremism is that it, it always leads these guys into real problems because they, they have difficulty actually making an accurate assessment of reality because their whole approach to the world is to make the world fit into their ideology rather than realizing that the real world has its own way of asserting itself. I mean, Umberto Eco used to say uh, fascists are incompetent at winning wars because they can't accurately assess their enemies. All right, before I let you go, David, what else are you looking at? What else are you working on? Well, I'm kind of hoping this is my last book about right-wing extremists per se, but I think what I would really like to do is try to write something about how we get out of this. Try to write a book that, that offers a roadmap to deal with this problem. So basically a book where I'm not writing about Nazis anymore, but I'm writing about us. <laughs> I think that's a totally fair desire on your part. Well, David, thank you for joining me. Before we go, David's new book is The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Rights Assault on American Democracy, out next month. But pre-order wherever you find fine books. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok for now, at Reed Galen, on Instagram, at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. David Nyward, thank you for joining me. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.